enjoyed the little intro there this is dave and this is an open letter and we've gotten away from our normal intro because chad our producer got a little bored with it so he's been kind of freestyling the last couple episodes um if you haven't heard it it's fun to kind of go through there we had sanford and son not too long ago i think that's right that was quality tiny I enjoyed tim. That. we did tiny tim for who knows why just to torture ourselves and you our listeners it was kind of your welcome back it was because we had kind of taken some time off for the wedding. We got married. We did the marriage thing. That's disturbing, Carol. Sorry. That's all right. There's a napkin and she drew it. Of a, there's a polar bear and she drew it with a bloody mouth. That's great, Carol. That's great. That's fantastic. All right. So we're going to jump into this. We got a lot, a lot, a lot to get through today. And we have a certain amount of time to do this. And so first off, I want to introduce or I want my guest, Mr. Michael Hintz, calling us from the lovely city of Omaha, Nebraska. Is that right, Mike? That is correct. All the way here where it's chilly right now, but it could be 70 tomorrow. So Yeah, same here. Are you in the city itself or are you out in the suburbs? Well, yeah, we're we're considered Omaha. We're in a suburb, but it's all. Cool. Well, Mike, say hi to everybody. Hi, everybody. I'm so glad to be with you today. All right. And then to my left, we have my lovely wife, Miss Carol Wilson-Tisma. Hello. And across from me, the superb producer, the man of the hour, Chad Cashman. That would be me. All right. We like to start every segment off with a little thing we like to call Off the Cuff, where I think of a question up in the last couple of minutes, and I pitch it to everybody. So my question today, and Mike, you're, you get to play too. The question for the day is, what is your ideal breakfast? Your ideal mm. breakfast. Chad, do you want to start us off in this one? Sure. Go ahead, buddy. Bacon. Gotta have bacon. Eggs. Toast. I'm more of a traditional. That is very traditional. Uh, the eggs. I, w- I yawned just now. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you. You're uh, welcome. Mike is shaming your breakfast choice, Chad. He is. Yeah. I like the OJ with it. Uh, pulp or no pulp? Uh, pulp is fine. What type of eggs? Over easy. All right. I knew it. Um, How did you know? He's an over easy kind of guy. I don't know what that means. Yeah, I don't know either. All right. Well, it's probably good, though. I um, hope so. Michael, what do you got for us? Your favorite breakfast? Well, my favorite breakfast would be banana pancakes with coconut and pecan and um, wow. in Hawaii. Because that's the best, <laughs> best place to eat. You know, I mean, if I'm going to have my best breakfast, it's going to be there. I can't argue with you there. And you've been to Hawaii, right? We did. We went there uh, a couple of years ago with the kids, and every morning we ate banana pancakes, and it was the best. Wow. Now I want to go to Hawaii. With banana pancakes. Let's go Absolutely. with a hint. Exactly. <gasps> that would be so come fun. Come on, let's do it. Oh, that would be so you, awesome. I have a useless fact for you. If you're please, interested. please, come on, throw that out there. Did you know a banana is considered a berry? What? Oh, I here I thought it was an herb. It's I have a, a berry. I have another mm. useless fact. For, well, it's not so useless, but there is a numbing agent in the skin of a banana, so that if you chew on banana skin, it will put your mouth to sleep a little bit. And there's actually a movie called K-Pax where Kevin Spacey actually eats the whole banana oh, and the peel. That is so gross. It's awesome. <laughs> anyway, Did he find it appealing? I think. Uh, wow, mic drop. 
Carol, favorite breakfast? My favorite breakfast would also have to be a traveling breakfast because it involves pain au chocolat. I'm sure it does. In Paris, uh-huh. at a cafe, with some fresh fruit and a bowl of café au lait. Let's go there where the hint is. So good. Boom. Yes. And then we can stop by Hawaii on the way home. On the way that home. That sounds perfect. Pretty much on the same same way. So, yeah. <laughs> Not really. Uh, my favorite breakfast, thank you for asking. You're very welcome. <laughs> You didn't ask what pain chocolat is. You I know what it is because I was in France with you this summer. Oh. So I'm going to guess by the name chocolat. It's got something to do with chocolate. Yeah, that and the fact that you're a woman. Tell- well, it's like, well, that wasn't sexist at all. Yeah, because oh, women don't purely. like chocolate. Tell us. Because okay. no men like chocolate. What oh, is- I like chocolate. But- children, children. <laughs> what is the breakfast? What is it? It's like croissant dough. Wrapped around bars of semi-sweet chocolate. And when it comes out of the oven, the chocolate is all gooey. Melty. And melty. And the croissant dough is all flaky. And it's really delicious. Um, <laughs> my favorite breakfast, when we were on the cruise a couple months ago in January, and we were touring in the cruising, I don't know. Okay. All right. Indiana Jones. It was adventurous. That was on the cave day. No, it was. The small, tiny cave. We'll talk about that later. Someday. But I love I love the breakfast buffet where because then I can have the bacon and the eggs and I can <laughs> you can have it all I can have you can all have, of it you can have banana pancakes <laughs> and bacon and toast and pan so chocolate. So your answer was really all of the above. That, that's yeah. right. Is it food? I like it. All right. Pretty much. Pretty much. All right. Well, thanks for playing off the cuff. I want to just start by saying a few words about my friend Michael Hintz. Mike's one of my favorite people in the whole world. Oh um, man. It's true. true. It's true. I've heard Um, this forever since I met him. I have a ton of respect for Mike. Uh, Mike and I have not always arm in arm, but we've walked through a lot of things in life with each other and uh, Mm, just very challenging, difficult things. And we used to actually have kind of our own gallows humor, which will become apparent later what we're talking about. For those of you who aren't familiar with my story, I'm not going to go into it right now because I've done a two-part podcast about my story, but Mike was integral he was a very key piece in walking me through a huge mistake i made in my life and so i've made it a point um, i moved away from iowa in 2007 i made it a point of every few years i go back out and i visit the hintzes and they're so incredibly welcoming and hospitable you wouldn't even know if they actually wanted you there or not they're so nice <laughs> we love having you around i so appreciate that it's, it's true and I had the privilege of uh, bringing my girlfriend at the time, Carol, out to Iowa when they lived in Des Moines a few years back, and they were so warm and welcome and gracious. It was when we first started dating, and I was told that I had to have their approval before <laughs> anything further could happen. And they got it, and you got their approval yes. very much so. Easily. That and was an easy one. One of my favorite, favorite things in the world to do is, uh, and for some reason we usually go in, in when it's cold out, which is not hard to do in Iowa. <laughs> and uh, we will sit in their hot tub and talk for hours and have some epic mm. conversations. Yes. Usually until the hot tub is cold. Yeah, that's right. We will outlast the hot tub. And that's then it doesn't true. feel good getting out. Not so much, especially no. when there's snow on the ground. All right. So that's a little bit of uh, just kind of my thoughts and feelings about Mike and the Hintzes. So, Mike, to start off, we are going to play a little bit of speed round because we've got a lot of information to get to today. So Carol and I are going to go back and forth and kind of ask you some questions and kind of get some background information about okay. who you are. Cause 
I don't know if you know this, but you're kind of a unique dude. <laughs> I am. You are. You are. And, okay. I, uh, and your wife, Sharla, who is just a, a doll, she's wonderful, has written a book about kind of what's happened for you guys over the last 10 years or so. And um, I'm reading that now. And um, yeah. boy, she describes you well. I could just picture teenage Mike. It's great. <laughs> All right, Carol, are you ready to start speed round with Mike? It looks like you got the first few questions here. Fire away. Where did you go to college? Uh, North Central Bible College and Iowa State. So do you have a master's degree then? No, I just, uh, I really loved college. And so, and I went to you and I as well for a little Yay. bit in the middle of that. Me too. Our yeah. former pastor at Grand Rapids First, Scott Hagen, has just been appointed the uh, new president of North Central. Did not know that. Get out of town. I didn't what? know that. Did. How about that? If you are out of town, so that makes sense. There you go. We're obedient. This is Nothing not much else. of a speed round, is it? No, go ahead. Okay. We're good. What was your major? I majored in pastoral studies, biblical studies, and, and with a minor in Greek, philosophy, and youth ministry. What kind of career were you hoping for? I was hoping to become a youth pastor or a youth speaker of some type. Run down the jobs that you had. Like, when you're like just make a, list, make a list of all the jobs you've had. <laughs> oh, uh, well, okay. I detasseled corn. I was a host at um, Red Lobster. I was a windsurfing and sailing instructor. I helped run a marina. I was a cab driver. I was um, a youth pastor. I flipped houses. I started a couple companies. And now I'm a campus pastor and I'm the campus of an all-state pastor. That's awesome. I think you just actually taught David a few new things. I did not know. You're living in Iowa. What are you doing at a marina or windsurfing? I'm like, what? I don't know. I don't know if you understand how that works. Anyway. I know. Well, it's a, it was a small lake, but it did some sailboats there. And I taught windsurfing and sailing lessons. It was awesome. That's, Best job. That, I believe it. That fits your personality. When you were a cab driver, and again, from Charlotte's book, did you really take a guy's stereo as payment? Uh, yes, I did. You followed up into his apartment and got a stereo. I did, because he took my cab, and he didn't have money to pay me. So I said, you can have your stereo back when you bring me the amount of money that was due, which was like 17 bucks or something like that. And I told him exactly where to find me, and he never came back. Do you still have the stereo? No, no. Wow. I don't even think I kept it. I was just mad that he tried to <laughs> rob me of a fare. Another cab question is, did guys really chase your cab and jump on it, and you kept driving? Oh, yeah, because they would have killed me. Otherwise, I stopped to pick up this guy, yeah. and he got, in, like, he said, hold on just a second. He was walking with some guys, and all of a sudden, he started running to my car, and he jumped in, and he was like, go, go, go. And there was a mob of, like, four or five guys chasing him, and I had a split-second decision to either allow them to mob the car or peel out and get out of there. So I chose peel out. They all jumped on my car, and they were yelling at me like, you know, we know what you look like, Cabby. We're going to kill you if we find you kind of thing. Oh, my. So I drove about a half mile down the road, and then I turned around, and after I took the guy's money, not all of it, just the fare, um, <laughs> I, I kicked him out of my cab and told him, don't you ever sell drugs, and then jump in my car again. Maybe if you would have offered the four gentlemen chasing you that stereo, you could have come to some type of <laughs> agreement. I know, you know, that's what, I should have kept it with me, yeah, but I didn't. You really should have. It would have been a great thing to barter with. Where was your first pastoral job? It was in uh, Cedar Falls, Iowa. That was the first job after I graduated college. I did have an internship before that, but Cedar Falls, I was a youth pastor, small little youth group there at a church called Glad Tidings. So Carol's somewhat familiar with that. I lived in Cedar Falls for seven years. Oh, okay. Yeah, so it was actually um, close to the, I think the water tower was nearby there. Oh, yeah. I can't remember the road. All right. 
it is kind of sad that you have to locate things by a water tower. But <laughs> That's your falls for you. Yes. Yeah, it is. But that was before I associated with people. Like, Did you go to a different place after that? I did. I was there for about two years. I was a part-time youth pastor. Um, the youth group grew, and I got a call from a church in Omaha called Trinity Church, and they hired me to be their youth pastor, and that was where I went next. Awesome. And then eventually I know you came back to Des Moines. What year yep. did you come back to Des Moines? It was 2001, uh, August. Yep. And what was it about First Assembly that brought you there? Well, it was the church I grew up in. It was my home church. And my parents and my wife's parents, we all, they all lived in Des Moines. And we had four little kids. And so we needed help. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And they how, were all... how old were the kids? In 2001, Emery was uh, one year old. Uh, Drake was three. Josiah was four, and McKenna was five. Whew. Yeah, I remember that. Do you ever regret moving back to Des Moines and going back to First Assembly in light of the story we're about to tell here in a couple of minutes? Well, of course. Like I would love to say I lived my whole life without regret, but there have been times where I regretted it. But I've come to the place where I just accept it, and now it's just part of my story. So. I don't feel regret that I came back to Iowa any. I think it was actually part of the plan. That sounds too deterministic. I, I think I <laughs> used my decision, and it was good. Right. You and I met. We met in the summer of 2001, and uh, I, yes. had, I had already been the children's pastor because I had gotten there in January at First Assembly yep. in, um, in Des Moines, Iowa. I, was, I, was the, I, I didn't know what the heck I was doing. I, you know, I had been a warehouse employee for 11 years, and you got there, and you had been a pastor for a while, and I and I remember you and I obviously kind of hit it off and became friends. And, um, yes. And as I was saying earlier, you walked me through after I resigned because of my addiction to pornography. And in fact, you and Mark Gamble were the only two guys who even knew what was going on. Yep. And you played a large part in me coming forward and confessing because I was good about not getting caught. Um, I could hide mm. it well. And do you remember confronting me on a September Friday afternoon and telling me that God had a word for me? I don't... Do you remember that? I remember it, but probably not as specifically as you do. <laughs> yeah, I remember it really, really specifically. Um, yeah. You volunteered or were assigned to be the pastor to walk me through the year-long restoration process. Yeah. We would meet uh, once a month or so? Yeah. And then we'd have lunch, and you'd kind of just go through the questions that you had to ask, and then, but more than that, you just were my friend, and uh, yeah. and loved me, and and uh, helped me get back on my feet, which was awesome. That is, I thank you for. And I think that actually that was a, a good time for both of us. Uh, I mean, it was a hard time, but yeah. it was a good time for our friendship. It was, and I think that's where it really because we were coworkers and got along real well. Um, but, you know, we're working and, you know, whatever. But that's really what solidified our friendship, absolutely. I would agree. And then you got to meet Carol a couple of years ago, and you guys yes. got to fall in love with her. <laughs> I know, and that was really easy because she's extremely lovable. I agree very much so. Yeah, and she's super good at questions. She like is. She takes, she takes a situation that's like, hey, we're having a good conversation. I wonder how we can go deeper, Carol. <laughs> Boom, we're deeper. That's how it works. Yeah, that, it's a superpower. It is. 
So to not go too much deeper right now, going in a little lighter. Oh, yeah, so there you go. It was like a setup. We're going a little lighter here. Tell us a little bit about, we want to we want to find out who you really are. And so tell us a little oh. bit about your childhood, like your family, sure. family dynamics, family situation, where you grew up, that kind of thing. Yeah, so I grew up, I was born in Muscatine, Iowa. I, I don't remember much of that. We moved to uh, the Des Moines area when I was four. Um, I had three siblings, an older brother and an older sister, and a younger sister. Okay. And the older two were four and five years apart. My brother was four years older, and then my younger sister was a year and a half younger than me. We grew up in the middle of the heartland in Des Moines, Iowa. Um, loved, loved Des Moines, even at that time. And, um, yeah, it was a good childhood. Did you have animals? I, we did. Thanks for asking. <laughs> David is dogs. laughing at me. <laughs> my favorite dog that I remember from my childhood was a, a dog named Muggsy, which was named a what? Boston Terrier. Muggsy. 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 Yeah. yeah. Okay. Like Muggsy Malone, except it was uh-huh. just a dog. Yeah. I thought it was the ugliest dog on the planet. Um, and it snored, snorted, <laughs> farted. It was like, but it, like it would greet people at the door, and it was like a gremlin, and oh. people would freak out because his eyes bugged out a little bit, and uh, yeah, kind of like the dog you love to hate. Yeah, it, it was weird. It was yeah, you almost felt sorry for it, but you're also often freaked out. Oh, nice! <laughs> it's a good combo. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> you didn't get too close. No, <laughs> I know it, there was. A situation, and of course, I know this is important to the story of who you are, and that was something that was taking place during your childhood. There was some abuse going on there. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so in fourth grade, um, I was sexually abused for on over, like not every day, daily, but over a course of about a year. Yeah, that was that was a difficult time for me as a fourth grader. Yeah, and you can't, it just messes so much stuff up in your mind and, and in your personality, you know, your emotions and spirituality and all of that. And uh, yep. and I know that we've talked about, you know, you and I have gone through that. You've shared what's happened to me. And I do think it's a really important point that there was at one time, there was an authority figure that kind of interrupted what was happening. Yep. Give us a yep. little bit of detail as to what happened there. Sure. So... You know, for me, when this guy, I mean, the perpetrator was much older than I was. And um, when this happened to me, there was a point where the authority figure came in, and I thought, hallelujah, I'll be rescued. Mm -hmm. And instead, I was condemned. Like, I can't believe what's going on. Um, I never, like, I never want to see this kind of behavior again, that kind of action. And you can't tell anybody about it. And so for me, that, you know, I think the best statement I can think of is children are really, really good receptors, but they're horrible interpreters. Yeah. So as I was receiving this, like, I, I took it all in. But my interpretation was I've done something so bad that if the people, even the closest people to me knew about it, they wouldn't accept me. Mm-hmm. And so I can't tell anyone. So what were some of the lessons, not good lessons, but what were some of the realities? How did that shape your reality in the way that you're like, here's some of the lessons and things I'm taking away from that even after that ended? Sure. You know, obviously, um, I had this catastrophic catastrophic event that happened in my life, and I felt like I couldn't share it 
with anybody. So, like, anything that I felt was negative had to be hidden. I was a very striving individual, so I strived really hard for everything that I did. I, I grew up in the Assembly of God, the, I think, I'm not sure, but I think it's the most striving um, performance-based religion out there. Wow. I remember when I was a kid feeling like I lost my salvation every time I sinned, so I had to hurry up and pray that Jesus would forgive me so I didn't, like, die or the rapture came while I was still sinning. Right. So, you know, that kind of context was in my mind. Once again, great receptors, horrible interpreters, but when you're growing up in your childhood and every other year they say Jesus is coming back, so stop sinning in every way, shape, and form, those are the realities that you interpret into your life. So with that kind of mindset, performance was really a big deal to me, and affirmation was a big deal for me. So I think if I would have to say um, what lessons I learned from that that I applied, it was there was a public persona that I could share with everyone. There was a private persona that I could talk to my friends about, but there was a super private, secret persona that I couldn't share with anybody. And, and didn't you say, too, that, you really saw yourself as now your damaged goods. Oh, yeah. I definitely felt like that's where that striving nature comes in. I always wanted to be better, but I never felt like I was good enough. Sure, sure, because you couldn't outrun what happened to you. Right, and I was also told that I like wasn't good, that something yeah. that I did or happened to me defined my ability to even be good. Yeah, so. I can relate to that more than I care to. I know, it's a sucky place to live, and it's such a hole. Yeah. How did that influence your perception of God? Were you aware of a change in your perception of who God was, or was it was it more subtle than that? It was probably more subtle just because of my age being mm-hmm. being like ten years old when this happened. Sure. That like I I think anytime you correlate a big event like that happening, you kind of think about how God sees you. I I probably would. They easily translated into a very striving religious, try to do good, try to be better, work harder at being better. Um, very low grace internally for myself, a lot of grace for everybody else. Mm-hmm. But I would beat myself up. I would, you know, I had a lot of negative self-talk that came in, and it probably gave me a, a reason to feel like God loved me, but he didn't need me. And if I didn't do the right thing, he would just cut me off. Yeah, and without much of a... Probably like a fear of that. Yeah. So, I mean, obviously, you know, you survived that, and now all of a sudden there's these ingrained messages in your head mm-hmm. that you're carrying with you, but that's your normal, of course. Yeah. You don't know life it's, any differently than that. No, I figure it's everybody's normal. Really? Uh, that's what I thought at the time. No, I thought, right. well, everybody probably thinks like this. Right. And then you meet this young lady who you know, if you read Charlotte's book, fell pretty hard for you. <laughs> well, it, she played a little bit, she played a little more um, hard to get than the book relates, but yeah. She, a lot of that was We told them pretty hard. Yeah. Where did you guys meet? What was that? We met when she was in seventh grade, I think, and I was in ninth grade. We met, met at Bible camp and like a summer kids camp or youth camp. Who do you think fell first? Are you able? Because in the book, Charlotte makes it sound like she fell pretty hard first. Would that, she is that does, accurate? Okay. Well, no, totally not accurate. Or at least <laughs> it's not accurate in the way that I perceived it. So in seventh grade, she was in seventh grade, I was in eighth grade. I introduced her to my best friend, Rick, and they dated for five years. 
Wow. Colossal, stupid first move. <laughs> After that ended, um, when she was, I went to you and I where she was at college and um, started hanging out with her and my sister, who was her roommate, and really, really started to develop really strong feelings for her. So I was a cab driver, as we talked about earlier, and I went back up to Minneapolis to drive cab for a week, and I thought, okay, God, I know I had a string of not very good relationships, and so I admitted, God, I don't know anything about dating, and I'd kind of sworn off dating about a year earlier. So I said, I just need to know before I let my emotions go on this one, is this the woman you want me to marry or not? And I spent the whole week praying about it, and I came back to Cedar Falls, and I went over to their apartment and went in and was talking to Charlotte, and I just, I told her, this is literally how it happened. She was washing dishes, and I was like, hey, it's good to see you. She was like, oh, it's good to see you. And um, she was like, I missed you, and I said, I missed you too. I, and I did a lot of praying and thinking while I was gone, and she said, oh, really? And I said, yeah, and I know that you're the one that I love, and I want to marry you. Just threw it out there. We hadn't dated it. We hadn't done anything. And mainly because <laughs> I had never done that before. I'd always played it cool, wanted to make oh. sure that somebody was way into me before I would admit that I was into them at all. But I felt like I'm, I'm trying to hear from God, and I'm just going to go for it. And she looked up at me because she's five foot and I'm 5'11". Right. And um, she looked up at me right in the eye, and she's like, huh. Well, I like you, too. That was it. I like you, too. So I think I clearly would have been the first one in that scenario because like and love were, you know, two things we discussed. And that was two weeks later when she told me, and it was awesome. So in the book, Charlotte does a great, great job describing you as very confident, playful, very carefree. Is that, is that how you felt at that time as a person? Well... I think in some way, I mean, it's like anything. There's like a dichotomy, at least I think, inside of every person. There's areas where they feel confident, and there's areas where they feel insecure. And so the things that you've done more often, you feel more confident about. Mm -hmm. So when it came to, like, talking to people and being in front of people and hanging out with people and having fun, that was completely my scene, and I was very confident in it. When it came to matters of internally knowing myself and, being okay with how I felt about myself, completely not there. Gotcha. So, does that make sense? It does. It definitely makes sense. How long did you date before you got married? How long did we? How long did we date? Uh, this is crazy. We, if you don't consider what I said to her as an asking for her to marry me, then it was two months, and then we got engaged, and then it was two more months, and then I left for Africa for the summer. And I got back for a month, and then we got married in October. So we got engaged in April, and I was married in October. Huh. What were you doing so in Africa? Um, I did a missionary internship in Kenya, East Africa, for the summer. Yeah, it was pretty fun. So then how long after you were married did you start having kids? Five years. So we were married oh. for five years, and then we just had them all really quick. Apparently. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we did. Yeah. Same it was the date. same due date. Oh, yeah, on the first three, a year apart. David has always spoken very admiringly, admiringly of your parenting and some of the intentional things you did as a dad. Can you give just a couple examples of that? Oh, um, well, we were totally. We thought we were ready, and we thought, "Hey, we're we're going to begin raising kids while being youth pastors." So we tend to kind of begin with the end in mind. That was 
what mm-hmm. we thought. We didn't sure. realize that high school isn't the end, but we thought so <laughs> yeah. at the time. And so we just really thought we care more about who they're becoming than what they're doing and their behavior. And so um, it started pretty early for us to say, we want to we care about the person you are and the person you're becoming. And so all of our parenting kind of developed and flowed out of that. So it broke down into um, trying to parent out of what we thought was important or what we valued. It didn't begin this way. It kind of ended this way. We ended up with 11 family values that we felt like were important to us about raising kids and just living life. And so things like be with, like when you're with somebody, you're not on your phone. When you're watching TV, we only had one TV in the house. Chad's on his phone right now. Everybody had to be on a program. (laughs) What's that? Chad's on his phone right now. (laughs) (laughs) So you're not being with. Nope. So it was just it was just kind of that nature, and then um, <laughs> you know just even when we were parenting, we tried not to do that. Like if we we're angry with our children because they you know kids do make you mad. They do. Right. We you, we would never discipline out of anger. Yeah. And so you know, and then the principle we taught our kids are things like you don't want to say what you're thinking when you're angry because you'll probably regret it, and you never want to touch somebody when you're angry, because you'll probably touch them harder than you think you are. And that was <laughs> mainly towards, you know, between Drake and Josiah, I could say yeah. that, our two boys. You will always touch somebody a lot harder than you think you will. Right. Yeah, you know, just things like that. We just That's tried to think it through. Yeah, That's I've seen cool. some of the family values in uh, some of Charlotte's writings on uh, her blog. So we're going to get to the tough part of this now, and that is okay. you've been a pastor at First Assembly now for a while. You're the, you're the youth pastor starting in August 2001. Mm-hmm. And you start a relationship, if you will, with mm-hmm. uh, a member of your youth group. Can you kind of give us a little bit of idea of, I mean, this is obviously a, a horrendous, horrendous mistake. Um, can you kind of talk us through briefly what happened? Yeah, I think I, I even would say it was more than a mistake. It was a sin. Yeah, like, well, absolutely. And, absolutely. Yeah. And so I think, you know, I think knowing my baggage, especially, so, you know, 10 years old, this journey started. At 33, 34 years old, I find myself in a place where I don't feel affirmed in my marriage. I feel like I have this young girl in my youth group that is very affirming, and, I mean, honestly, what takes place is um, we became sexually involved, and um, I was, it, you know, it's, trying to think how to say this in a quick way, it's so much. Right. Uh, I know. Yeah, so, um, you know, for me, what I mean, I guess maybe the basis of your question is what was in it for me, is... I didn't feel like I was good enough in anything that I did, even though everybody was telling me I was doing a great job. Um, there was affirmation that I was finding in inappropriately in a relationship, mm-hmm. if you want to call it that, um, that led to what became sexual exploitation of a client by a counselor, is what the charge was. So me being 34, her being 17, it's, you yeah. know, it's not... It's not a relationship how I would think you would yeah. define a relationship. 
you've been through and, and you you were arrested uh, uh yeah uh is it is it difficult for you to share your story this now that um, we're so many years later you know i don't know if it's i mean it's always difficult I mean, who ever wants to air their garbage out in front of the whole world but right um it's been it's been so publicized it's been so out there that I don't think it's difficult for how it affects me. I think if anything, it's just wanting to be careful to not affect others right. in a negative way, but also share the story in a way to say, man, if you're like me, there's a place of hope in that. So, yeah. This was the year after you had been talking David through his recovery. Uh, yeah, this was 2004. 2004. Okay. So, a couple years. Yeah. Just past. trying to place Yeah. Like three yeah. years later. You know, it's interesting how open, just some, one of the similarities that you and I have is just the openness in sharing what happened to us. And as this was happening, and just a little backstory here, um, President Bush had gone through Iowa, which is always the first caucus state, and he mm-hmm. pulled your family up on stage during some type of a rally. Is that correct? Yeah, we got to, we got to I got to actually meet George Bush, and we signed a, a family values tax law into effect with him and you got and when you got arrested and your mugshot is on television and the, once the the democrats found out and some of the more let's say we say opportunistic people they kind of have a field day with that didn't they oh yeah well i mean bush had just gotten elected this was october like that i signed it with him he was elected in november so it's now it's it's November, like mid to late November, maybe even December, I get arrested and it was a heyday. I mean, I was on the local news in in Des Moines. I was on the news in Omaha because I'd lived there. I was on MSNBC. Um, Yeah, it was a field day. I was all, I think at one time, you you should never do this, but I Googled my name on the internet and I had like 126,000 hits in less than 30 seconds. Oh, Wow. So, so and not, they weren't nice. They weren't like, "Oh, no. we love that guy." Yeah. And 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 I, there's still stuff out there that's not very nice. Um, as sure. I've done some prep stuff for this, and uh, it's just like, and it's hard for me because I know you and love you and your family, and just just it's just not fair at all. Like some of the stuff is so pulled out. Like, oh, we know this person did this thing. They're horrible. They're an awful person. Yeah. They need to, they yeah. deserve the worst of the worst of the worst. And I oh, yeah. and I have to go back and go, man. How many times have I done that uh, without yeah. knowing knowing one percent of the story? Um, and that's not right. minimizing how horrible, yeah, the sin that you did. Obviously, we don't we're, oh. not, we're not trying to minimize that at all. But there is oh. humans on the other side of these stories. Um, well, I mean, for me, I would have rather when this was coming out and like before I finally sat down and talked to my wife and then talked to my pastor. I mean, I was so ready to run away from the whole situation that I had $4,000 in cash in a shoe in my closet. And my plan was to go to Machu Picchu, fake my death and live in Peru wow. and just try to make a new life for myself. That yeah, that sounds how, so Mike hints to me. <laughs> the adventure. How deluded your thinking becomes yeah. when you're yeah. that scared. Yep. Do you, just a question. Do you happen to still keep $4,000 in a shoe in your home? I'm just curious. Just curious. I'm no, just I wondering. keep it in. I keep it all in socks now. <laughs> Excellent. Socks. Stocks or socks? I like to say, 
<laughs> no, no, it was definitely stocks, not stocks. Okay. You can't trust the stock market, no. but you can trust your sock drawer. You can I trust, hope they're clean. You can trust the sock market. Thank you. Um, <laughs> anyways, um, so you and I are kind of similar in that we are very open about our stories. And, I mean, people have told me before, I, a friend of mine at church has told me, you're, you're nuts and you shouldn't do this. This is bad that you tell your story. Why do you yeah. think, what is it about guys like, you can help me understand myself, why do guys like us do this? Why do we share our stories to such uh, what other people call an insane level? Um, I only do it. I, don't, I can't really take any um, ownership over why you do it. <laughs> I can only yeah. say the reason I do it is I do it when I'm asked. And, um, and I figure, you know, the truth is, if I can tell somebody my story and it keeps them from repeating it, mm-hmm. then... There's one less person hurt, and there's one more person set free. And to me, that makes all the difference in the world. Yeah, absolutely. I have another idea about that, just from knowing David and from my own story. I feel like when you can share your story, it gives you some kind of ownership or control over it so that it's... It's almost empowering to be able to do that, to be able to help someone with it rather than let it define you. Yeah, I think that's true because if you're scared of sharing it, then it has a certain power over you. Absolutely. And, I, and I've been, always been such a big, uh, you know, I, I'm trying to get out there and saying you, you can't have secrets. you got to have. And I learned some of the stuff from you, Mike, as you're going through your yeah. counseling from this. Yeah. You know, you're only as sick as your secrets, which is a real common phrase, but... You start to really own that. And so for people listening, and you've got this deep, dark secret, and nobody yeah. knows. I mean, I'm just telling you, it's going to kill you. You just can't yeah. do that. It's really destructive. Yeah. The problem is... No, in fact, oh. there's, a, there's a part of Charlotte's book that I was thinking about where she, she actually borrowed my journal to write it. Yeah. And um, there's this little excerpt where it talks about how it works. And, and I always think it works like this. It works like this, it baits you in with a tiny compromise and a little diluted line of reasoning only slightly veering from the truth. And then you try to fix your sin and the folly of your, your own folly and the shadows of your heart. And the reasons are always logical. It'll hurt my wife. It'll hurt my family. It'll hurt my friends. Nobody will understand. And then you think you can correct it before any real damage is done. And yep. the more you try to fix it, the more it actually controls you. And then and in my journal I wrote, it's like I was trying to wipe sap off my hands and every place that I touched, attempting to clean, became dirty with the stickiness of sin. And then the shadow grew. And the shadow, which at one time seemed to be a place of refuge, became instead a dark pit of despair. And I drowned in it. And I think that's, if you can bring light into the shadowed areas of somebody's heart so that they can ex- actually experience freedom, then it's worth it. Yeah, I agree. The, the problem is that they need to feel safe in order for that to happen. Like somebody can't open themselves up if they don't feel like they can do that safely and without um, fear of judgment and rejection. And yeah. in David's story, we talked about how um, pornography is often a temptation for pastors because of their, well, partly because of their situation where it, they're often isolated and can't be honest or vulnerable with the people around them. Did you feel like that was your situation too? Or did you feel like you were facing this on oh. your own 
Like, was there yeah. anyone that you could talk to about your struggles at that time? No, not at that time. I felt very isolated, very alone. And mm-hmm. I felt like it was not a safe place. There was no way that yeah. was a safe place. Yeah. I remember I was through, I was already through my restoration process with the Assemblies of God, which was a year long. And I remember getting a phone call and it was you. And you mm-hmm. told me what happened. Um, yeah. And I know I was one of many phone calls that night because you and I only spoke for a couple minutes. Um, cause yeah. of course I didn't, I had no idea what to say other than I love you and I'm, I'm here for you and you'd tell me what you need and I'm here. Do you remember how many phone calls you made that night? Actually, I made more uh, visitations than phone calls. Okay. So uh, um, I actually went around and talked to my neighbors oh, because wow. it was wow. all coming out. Yeah. And so I didn't want them to find out by watching the news or different things like that. So it was, I, I knew were really, really early on. You were probably a little bit before my neighbors, but um, I couldn't make more than two phone calls a night. in that time frame because it was just it was hard if you could go back in time and deliver a message to yourself before any of this stuff happened what age or when would you have picked if you could like have delivered a targeted message to yourself before Mm -hmm. any of this the sin happened and the delusion and the refuge and the darkness when do you think you might have been able to to deliver that what might you have said Oh my goodness! I can't tell you how many times I've thought about this. Oh, I, I know, because um, <laughs> I've done the same thing in my life. I think I would go back to myself as a fourth grader, and hmm. I would probably clarify the message that I received then. So, and to do that, I'll jump way ahead, uh, and hopefully this is not too bad. But the day after I told Charlotte everything, and everything fell apart, and she took the kids and went to her dad's house. Her mom and dad showed up at my house. Oh, boy. And, yeah, and I was ready. I was kind of bracing myself. Um, they knocked on the door, and I saw it was them, and I didn't want to answer the door, but I think they knew I was home. Yeah. And so I went to the door, and I was just expecting to get blasted. And uh, David, her dad, walked in, and the, and, and his wife, uh, Chris, and he said, before anything, we just want to tell you something. And in my mind, I thought, okay, here it comes. Right. I mean, I'm, I'm ready. You can, I probably agree with you. You can say any, everything you want to say, because mm. it won't be anything that I haven't said to myself. And um, he said, I just want you to know that we love you, that we're still proud of you, mm. and that this is just a speed bump. Wow. And I remember thinking... What in the world? A, why do you love me? B, how could you be proud of me? And C, why in the world do you think this is a speed bump? Because I feel like I drove the car off the cliff, and it crashed on the bottom of the cliff wall and burst into flames like you see on TV. Yeah. And if I could do anything, I would go back to my fourth grade self and basically tell myself the same thing, that I still love you yeah. and I'm proud of you. And this isn't, this isn't as big as you feel like it is. And we can walk through this wow. and just make it a safe place. I think that would be the most important message that I, would, that I was missing. Do you still, I mean, that's very, uh, and I've referenced Christ's life or the ultimate journey on this show before. That's a very, very Christ's life. Um, do you still have to go back to that fourth grade boy and still do that today? 
here's the thing. I don't. I think I did that. I, the harder part was going mm. back to the 30, 34-year-old man and and loving him and not hating him. Right, because if there's one thing that this country despises, and, and rightfully so, it's someone who hurts children. And I totally get that. How, out of what place do you think they were able to do something like that? Because that's, I mean, there's a lot of people listening who are like, they shouldn't have done that. That was wrong. But I'm here to say, I applaud what they did. And I think it was fantastic. And, and that's because I know who you are and I knew the state of your heart at the time. Sure. What do you think that was born out of? How are they in the, how in the world were they able to do that? Oh, my uh, in-laws? Yeah. I I don't know. I think they were wiser and older than I was, and they saw they saw something in me uh, that was maybe like wrong. And I don't even know if they saw that it was wrong. They just loved me, and um, the I guess for me it was just I think the only way they could do that is. Because they had received grace in their life. That'd be the only way that you could give grace. Right, right. Because, I mean, grace is really grace when it's hard to give, and it's when it's most needed. Uh, Grace is a word we throw around a lot, but boy, when it's really difficult and you don't deserve it, the least is when grace is needed the most. Yeah, yeah. And if your message is, if anybody finds out about this, they're going to hate me, and they'll never want, you know, that was my message from fourth grade on. So anything counter to that has, like, I mean, if you're braced for impact and then you get that instead, it's like you fall in your face. There's nothing you can do. So could you tell us a little bit about how Sharla reacted and how the um, how it, how it kind of came out? And because I think at first you were you had denied it, and then yep. you well, it, you know, I'm not saying that's okay, but I get it. Could you kind of walk us through a little bit about the discovery and how Charlotte reacted when you told her it was true? Sure. It started coming out, and I did deny it at first. And then I was doing that contemplation, should I run away to Machu Picchu, fake my death, and try to live life uh, as if I'm Peruvian? And Yes, because you, you look Peruvian. I do, and I don't even speak Spanish, so that would have been the moment. <laughs> so... There was a point in time where I just gave up, and I sat down with her. She was actually, it was a night I was with the kids to bed. She was doing laundry. I can still picture it. And I I just sat down with her, and I said, I need to talk to you about something. And said, everything that you're hearing and everything that I've been denying is actually true. And I just went through, and I told her. And she, I mean, she reacted like anybody in that situation. She screamed into the laundry. Um, because she didn't want this to be her life. And um, it was hard. I mean, it was really hard. And uh, she didn't want to talk to me. She was extremely mad at me. She wanted me to die. She actually spent that whole night praying that I would die. And um, and then she left the next day with the kids. And, I, I mean, that's I look back at that now, and I think, like, that she would even be that transparent with me in the, in the moment is amazing because um, I just can't imagine how much that hurt her. Yeah. So how on earth did your marriage survive? What what steps did you take? If you can't tell, 
Carol's got a few tears right now. <laughs> oh, yeah. It's. I wish that there was like it was easy, and you just say like, because we as Americans, we just want three steps to wholeness. Well, I was thinking more oh, like really? seven steps to restoration, <laughs> but you know, three would be good. Yeah, three's better. Yeah. <laughs> so go ahead. Yeah, three go ahead. I'm just saying what Americans want. They want oh, I know. one step. Um, I think first and foremost was um, I had to, I had like me getting honest and, you know, sitting down with her and doing a full, full disclosure. This is everything. Any question you want to ask, lay it all on the table. So there was no, there was no question. And then, and not even knowing what was ahead for me because, it, because it was a legal issue. They also did like, um, sexual history polygraph. So if I had lied to her on the initial one, she would have found out later. Didn't know that, but just being transparent, and then, um, and then it's just, it's a long process of rebuilding trust and durability to your relationship. And so then it's just every day, like, I, I think for me, because I can't talk on her, her book will tell you her side of the story. Yeah, I've read her book. For, <laughs> and we're going to okay. have her. We're on, waiting for yours. And we're going to have her on the podcast too, so. <laughs> well, I hope to have a book by the end of the year, that's my goal. Excellent. But it's not really necessarily uh, the same as hers. But, um, <laughs> but I think for me, it, it came from when everything was stripped away and I literally had nothing, there was this moment where all I had was my relationship with Jesus. Mm. And it was in that moment that I realized this is really all that I've had all along. Mm-hmm. Like, Everything else that I thought I had, I didn't really have. And, you know, he's the only true affirming voice in my life. And I had to find my true affirmation for who I was in him because the road ahead of me wasn't easy. Cause, and I know that you remember this, David, because you were there for some of these, like, comments. Like, it was months that Char was mad at me. Yeah. And it was months that there were, like, undercutting sarcastic comments about how I'd ruined her life. And if I was looking in any way, shape and form for any affirmation of how I was doing in my wife, I would have never found it. And if I was looking for it in her, I could never give her what she needed, which was a guy who was on his path to wholeness because he had gotten himself right in his relationship with God and his relationship with the people around him. So it was just for me, it was just doing that over and over again letting her know I loved her. But then for her, it was a decision. Am I going to choose him again? Mm. And she had the right to not. She had the right to divorce me and walk away. And for a while, that's exactly what she said she was going to do. And I had to accept it that I was going to be okay without that. And it brought me to really some hard realities in life. Like, Mm -hmm. you know, the truth is, for all eternity, I'm not going to be married to Charlotte. I'm going to be single. And, like, honestly, that's how I was born. And so there, in the way that I was created, I wasn't eternally meant to be married. I was meant to be God's. Mm. And so in that, there, he should be enough for me. But working through that in the midst of this, that was a two-year, three-year process. And then for her, it was making a choice depending on what she wanted to do and what she felt like God was leading her to do. Not what I was trying to talk her into, not what... Anybody, I mean, because everybody will offer their opinion oh, in yes. the moment. Whether it's wanted or not. Yeah, exactly. So, how long did you feel as if you were trying to 
earn her love back or heal that love? And, and can you remember hmm. when you knew she had forgiven you? There's two different parts. There was a, a time about four months into it where, where she said, okay, I'm willing to go to uh, a marriage intensive with you, which was the first admission on her part that she even wanted to work wow. on our marriage, which I took as a huge sign. Yeah. But it wasn't like a promise because I'm going to stay with you and we're going to work through this thing. It was like, I'm going to see if there's any hope for our marriage. We'll go to this intensive, and if there's any hope, then maybe I'll make a decision after that. And so we kind of went through the marriage intensive. We didn't kind of. We did. It was a week-long intensive. And then after that, there was a time frame where she, probably within a couple months after that, so I would say February or March, she said, I was praying about it, and I, I know that I can never trust you again, mm. and I won't ever trust you again. And so this, to me, was the determination of she was going to leave me. Right. But she said, I was praying about it, and I, and I asked Lord, what did he want me to do in this? And he said, I didn't ever ask you to trust Mike in that way. <laughs> like, yeah. I just asked you to trust me. Wow. Uh-huh. And so the question was, can you trust me in your relationship with Mike more than you trust Mike. Yeah. And when she walked through that, she realized that was exactly what God wanted her to do. And she said, but I need you to know, I don't feel like I love you. I don't even know I'll ever say that I love you, but I am choosing this because I feel like this is what pleases the Lord. So you grow up and you feel like, you know, this, this horrible thing has happened to you. It becomes your normal, and the normal then becomes to hide because if someone knew who I really was, they'd reject me, um, and I can't let them see how damaged I am. Then you get into the pastorship, which is just like this perfect, unholy, unhealthy fit for that. And then Mm -hmm. you were able to flip it all around and become insanely vulnerable. Yeah. How do you think you achieved that? Well, I would say I achieved it because... It's funny, because I would never use the word achieved, because I didn't achieve it. Two years before this whole thing happened, I prayed a prayer, because I knew that something wasn't right internally, like with the way I was living. And I said, God, I I feel like there's pride in me. I feel like there's things in me that would keep me from a a relationship with you. And I just, I don't know how to get over it. I want you to do whatever it takes. And I really feel like this was him. So when you ask, how did I achieve this or how did I get over it? I think like the Lord exposed this right. in me by my choices. So I don't think he caused any of this to happen, but he used my choices right. and he brought them into light and exposed me so that he could have me. It's as if he let you act upon your weaknesses so that he, you could learn how much you needed him. But the thing is, is I've, I know people who have gone through things like this besides you and I, and what your choice was is not the normal choice. I think that's my point there. When I, and achieved is the wrong word, but this isn't the normal way this, play, this story plays out. Well, neither was Charlotte's. No, no, not yeah. at all. But it started yeah. with Mike going, I'm going to now flip on, my, flip on its head everything I've learned and trusted and lived to be true I'm now going to go completely, I'm going to start swimming upstream from that. 
Yeah. Which is a deliberate think, choice that you made. Yeah, I think somewhat it's a choice and somewhat it was a... Uh, I think things things changed in me. The minute that Charlotte's dad told me that he loved me mm. and that he was proud of me mm. and that this was just a speed bump, caused a, a new thought to enter into my head that I honestly think the Lord used to rewire something in me that said, I believed a lie for a really long time, that if people knew this about me, they would hate and reject me, and I would be discarded. So it was this instance of of extreme grace that started you down that path to be able to do that, start swimming upstream. Yeah, and then it was just, and I really feel like there were times where even the way I thought was beginning to be rewired in, in the midst of this, where... Now I was living with no secrets, and I found greater freedom. And, you know, even now when I tell my story, I don't want to hold it back because I feel like this, is, this isn't the story I would have chosen if I could go back to being a starry-eyed 16-year-old, what do you want to do with your life? Right. But this is, the, this is the journey that God has brought me through, and I'm so proud of who He is in that. Wow. That, like, to not tell his story in my life uh, would be almost as sinful. Yeah. So we're going to start wrapping up here. We're running out of time. So, and I know this is a question on people, on people's minds that are listening right now. And that question is, is how do you make sure that you don't make, you're a pastor again, which you and I talked many I times through the years, the two thousands, um, into the, you know, even in 2010, 2011, you know, and, and totally understood, you were like, I will never be a pastor again. And you and I, <laughs> we used to laugh about people who did yes. that and they're insane and there's no way. And I'm super yes. proud. I'm super proud of you, my friend. So proud of you. So excited for you and your family that you are back you. in ministry. Cause I, I always had this feeling like there's, there's no way that can be done in your life because you have so much talent, God given talent. The big question is, how do you make sure that this sort of thing doesn't happen again? Yeah. Well, I think, first of all, I would agree with you. I never thought I'd become a pastor again. And I didn't want to. Like, I got the phone call and sat down with uh, a friend of mine who brought the idea of who happens to be on staff here. And I said to him, like, Mike, you know my whole story. Like, what are you thinking? This is a bad idea. Yeah, and he's like, you know, we just feel like this might be God. <laughs> I was like, so I prayed about it, and I felt like, it, honestly, he had heard, I think it is God. I think this is what He wants to do, and so I think the key is not living in fear. If I live scared of making that mistake again, then that fear will have a power over me. Right. But if I live the exact same way I lived the last ten years, where like, you know, when when my wife is gone, like she is right now, and I, if I have any desire to look at anything inappropriate or I'm thinking, I'm like, I'm texting her, hey, uh, tomorrow morning when you wake up, ask me what I watched last night. And so that it's just, it's just habit now. It's just in me. I don't live in a way that I keep those things hidden. I live in a way that they're open. So it's not a prevention plan, but it's just a living plan. Mm. Does that make sense? Absolutely. Sure does. Carol and I have um, been working on doing that with each other, 
giving my story. And it's just, it, it becomes the way you live your life without apology. It's just like, no, this is just how we have to do life, and it's okay. Yeah, yeah. So how are you and your family doing now? We're doing great. Our kids are 21, 20, 19, and about to be 17. Mm. And we're doing great. Char and I are doing great. We just celebrated our 25th wedding anniversary. Aww. It's like we, we are really doing what God has asked us to do. And we're, we're enjoying it. Here's my last question for you. Sure. Can you tell me the difference between Pastor Mike Hintz in 2002 and Pastor Mike Hintz of today? I feel like it's, it feels like in some ways it's night and day. I think Pastor Mike Hintz of 2002 was living in fear all the time. Mm-hmm. Of if somebody really knew who I really was, they wouldn't love it and or accept me. And Pastor Mike Hintz now is like, I don't care if anybody loves me as long as God, as long as I'm good in my relationship with God, everything else is fine because he defines who I am. And I think that's probably like, I do care. I do want, I don't, I'm not insensitive and cold to people, but I think Pastor Mike Hintz of 2002 was more concerned about people affirming him and loving him because it made him feel better about who he is. And now it's just my relationship with God. It's literally the only thing holding me together. Yeah. At the same time, knowing how healing that was for you to hear that message from your father-in-law, knowing what that would have meant to me at 15 or 14 or 13, and knowing what it would have meant to David. Yeah. Even though we don't, need to be looking that from other people looking for that from other people i think that's something we can look to provide to other people yeah absolutely yeah exactly and i even think as we raise our own kids to be thinking about the power of the message when you when you catch somebody doing something wrong they already feel ashamed because you caught them and if we could somehow de-escalate our surprise and escalate our love, our reaffirming. You haven't lost anything yeah. in your relationship with me. And this is just a speed bump. Then he gives them context to actually overcome their situation rather than feel like, I guess I've blown too big. Yeah. Right. And, it's, and I can't be fixed. I can't be repaired. I've blown it, and there's no way back for me. Yeah, and that's the fear. And we know that perfect love casts out fear. And I'm just, again, struck by, uh, and I know your in-laws a little bit, just what an incredible moment, what an incredible gift from God that was to yeah. you. That's yeah, really cool. it really was. That's they awesome. They're, they're a total gift. All right, we're going to wrap it up. Mike, thank you so very much for being willing to come on the show and, and, uh, and just share all this because my heart, I think, is the the same as yours in many ways is we have to share these stories so that people can learn how to get free. So, so Mike, here's, here's what I want you to do. And then I'm going to close this up. There's people listening right now. that are in a dark spot. They're in a dark time. They've done something that they're ashamed of and they don't feel like they can tell anyone. Um, you and I know exactly how that feels. Could you, could you speak to them for a minute? Yeah. Yeah. I would say this. You, if you're at all like me, you desperately want to be free. 
And the good news, and also the hard news, is the path to freedom is usually the one that you're most scared of. Mm-hmm. But if you if you trust in the midst of this, the way God has set things up, and I think in James chapter 5, verse 16, it says, if you confess your sins to one another, you will be healed. He's faithful and just to forgive you, and you'll be healed. That whole mindset of letting out the secrets and not keeping them in will actually allow healing to take place in your life. And so often, we, we struggle alone with our secrets because we think nobody can understand us. You don't know how bad it is. You don't know what I've done wrong. And I, I, I would rather try to find any other way. And the truth is, you can't do this alone. Like, that act of letting it out allows light to shine in an area that is dark right now. And secrets, they always kill. My friend, I love you, my brother. I love you. And I appreciate you very much. And I can't, uh-huh. wait, to, can't wait to come back out. And uh, thank you for being my friend. And, you bet. Uh, it's I, easy. Thanks for having <laughs> me on your show. Yeah, and I can't wait to come back out and, uh, and to see you guys and have another hot tub uh, conversation. <laughs> I look forward I to it. I can't wait. Awesome. All right. Thanks, Have man. a great day, guys. You too. Mm. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. That was a podcast I've been waiting to do again for a very long time. I very much love that family. I appreciate them. And uh, I, I, don't, I don't know what you guys take away from this, those who are listening. I'm not sure. But Mike and what they've walked through is just nothing short of astounding. Um, the amount of healing. I know that uh, it's not. Mike got to keep his marriage. Carol and I didn't get to keep our marriages and that was very, very difficult time to walk through. And I'm super happy that he got to, but I can tell you when you walk with Christ and you walk with God, even though life seems broken and destroyed and there's no way it can be put together. I can tell you, God gave me a wonderful, beautiful woman to be my wife. And I'm so blessed to have her. No, see, I wasn't the microphone wasn't on for that. What was that? I said, it goes both ways. What buddy boy. (laughs) Well, you've been listening to an open letter, uh, this podcast. We need you to tell people about us. We want to grow our audience base, not simply for numbers, but because we feel like these are stories that people need to hear because we know that there's people who are hurting and struggling and broken and and, uh, in the midst of shame and don't know where to go. And we want them to hear this message because we think it'll help. And that's why we do this. Um, So if you can contact us, that would be great. Contact us on Facebook. Our page on Facebook is An Open Letter. We need to hear from you. Otherwise, we also have an email address and open letter to you. So that's an open letter, the number two, and the letter U, and open letter to you at gmail.com. We're on iTunes. We're on SoundCloud. We'd love a review on iTunes. We don't have enough yet. We need more. We need to know how we're doing. And Carol, you had one last thing you wanted to say? Yeah. If you're interested in reading through the story of Mike and Charlotte and how their marriage survived and healed and grew even stronger, Charlotte has written a book called love again that you can find just by googling go to amazon it's there all right thanks everyone for listening we love you we'll talk to you next time